2: Welcome to the Football Writers' Podcast. My name's Mike Calvin. I'm joined by Daniel Storey, the author and columnist, and by Seb Stafford-Bloor, editor of Tifo Football. Unlike a certain footballer, it seems, we know our history. The Manchester derby has its own timeline and tradition. 1974, Dennis Law sends United down. 2001, Roy Keane's revenge on Alf Inga Haaland. 2011, Fergie's worst ever day. City win 6 1 at Old Trafford. 2019, will United somehow deny City the title? What do you think then?
0: Not if logic and current form and just about anything else um, plays its part. No, they won't deny them the title. Um, Manchester City have been galvanised in some way, by what they consider to be a, an unfair uh, exit from the Champions League. There was always a question about which way that they would go, whether they would um, be psychologically harmed by that or whether it would, it would give them greater resolve to make sure that they don't just end up with, with domestic cups this season. And it seems to have done the latter. Um, and Manchester United are a mess. Um, they are as bad as they ever were under Jose Mourinho. Are we going to Shah's impact was was short term, but doesn't now look to be anything but that. And yeah, if it goes to to form and, and quality of the team and quality of the manager, then then City win comfortably.
2: Mm. If we look at
1: United, Seb, what is rotten in the state of that football club? I don't like the attitude, Mike. I I, uh, I was watching the game on Sunday, and I, I thought one of the most telling parts of that was if you if you watch the Everton goals back and you see the, the replays and you track the positions and the body language of some of the main United players, there's this kind of, there's this flippancy to it, which is really concerning. I mean, I know we're late in the season. I know, you know, to be fair to Manchester United, they've just been dumped out of the Champions League. Um, But they, before kickoff at Goodison Park, they still have plenty to play for. They've got a Champions League place for next season to contest. And yet there's this kind of strange acceptance of not just being beaten by Everton, being humbled by them, being absolutely battered in every department of the game, um, there are other concerns. I mean, I, I would I wouldn't say that Manchester United are, you know, on talent merit, a place uh, in the top four at the moment. But there's it's just a, there's this general level of underperformance, which seems to have more to do with with attitude than kind of the, the wear and tear that you expect in sort of April or May of the season, um, or even in a, a week where they've played three games. It's uh, it's unsettling.
2: Mm. Does only you know, Gunnar was talking about a lack of fitness. Well, mm. a lot of new managers always pinpoint that, don't they? It's got to be more than that, isn't
0: it? I think it's a it's a, an imperfect storm, basically. I think the, I think the fitness is an issue. There were rumours that some players were not happy with the training under Jose Mourinho and his coaching staff. Anyway, particularly after the departure of Rui Faria, um, I think there are players that don't particularly want to be there. I think there are players who feel let down by their club, both both Manchester United's transfer market inactivity, and also I suspect um, at the treatment under Jose Mourinho that they felt that the club was backing the manager over before before they eventually sacked him Uh, and it all adds to to a picture where you could probably point at two or three players and say I can be sure that they are A, enjoying playing their football and B, trying their absolute hardest for Manchester United. I think there's probably two players in that team and that's To my mind, that's probably Jesse Lingard and and Scott McTominay, who are both academy graduates and who both um, shouldn't be the best players in that team or certainly shouldn't be the players on which everyone is hanging their hat. Um, It's an embarrassment.
2: Mm. Let's grasp the Mourinho nettle, shall we? Just with a a question from one of the listeners. Tony Cardinelli. I promise him I'll come up with this one. Um, (laughs) You all who solely blame the Mourinho, this reminder is the truth will eventually come out. And it wasn't one of the great Stevers' fault. Rather, it was Woodward and his entitled, coddling
1: players. You were all wrong. Well, were we? See, I didn't think you were going to read that out. i a better I saw that in the agenda. <laughs> uh, yeah, but this is the thing. I, I, I was reading that last night and I thought, I don't know many people that, that specifically and precisely laid the blame at Mourinho's door for this. Oh, to I be think, fair, I think we did. No, but I mean, there was always there were always the caveats and the asterisks. There was always the, yes, this is happening. It was a it was a compartmentalised criticism. This is the problem with with Manchester United on the pitch, and in the next breath, and in, in the sort of subsequent paragraphs, these are, these are the issues which instruct that failure higher up in the club. Um, I don't think Mourinho comes out any better as a result of anything that's happened now because the problem with Mourinho um, was kind of anecdotal, wasn't it? It wasn't necessarily. Tactical, although there were issues there, it was his behaviour and the way he treated players, and this kind of fog of negativity that he created around the club. I mean, we've all sat in press conferences with Mourinho at different stages of his career, um, and anyone who sat in the press conferences before he was he was sat by Manchester United, you mm-hmm. can't avoid it. It was a it was a sulk. It was a uh, I, no. I I don't think I don't think anything that happened then has been reframed by what Manchester United are experiencing now. So no, I. Uh,
0: No, (laughs) there's also let's not pretend that Jose Mourinho was this freedom fighter for the people who was railing against uh, Manchester United's hierarchy. He he went along with everything until Ed Woodward told him that he wouldn't sell Anthony Martial and that he wouldn't spend 75 million on Harry Maguire for him and he wouldn't pursue Willian from Chelsea
1: or Aldevarald. Yeah, after after that
0: he he threw his toys out the pram. But this was not that was a name of that was as a means of self-preservation. It wasn't as a means of looking out for supporters and trying to make Manchester United as good as they could be. This was about Jose Mourinho saving face at a point when he realised he was very quickly losing it. Um, the one thing Manchester United haven't tried, to my mind, is a forward-thinking, progressive, recently successful manager. Yeah. And that covers David Moyes, it covers Louis van Gaal, it covers Jose Mourinho and it covers Oli Gunnar Solskjaer as well, I think. Um, a manager like Riccio Pochettino. I can see why they had to appoint Solskjaer after the short-term burst, but a stronger club with a greater long-term vision says thanks for doing that that's exactly what we wanted but we need to look forward now because if we don't we're getting left behind and they haven't done that
2: mm-hmm. and are we seeing another element of that in you know a lot of talk now that no. mickey phelan will be put upstairs to technical director michael carrick who i've always seen as a bit of a coming man at that club anyway promoted to assistant manager but in the modern game
1: you know, that's almost shuffling the deck chairs on the Titanic, isn't it? Mike, it's all all too comfortable. It's all too familiar. It's kind of what you know and what you're happy with. And, you know, with the greatest respect to all of those people.
2: And they've done a good job so far. They have
1: done a good job so far. And and nothing that's happened now. We shouldn't sort of dismiss what happened and what brought Solskjaer to the point of being permanently appointed. However, Manchester United have had fundamental issues in the way their football structure operates for some time now. And... I'd extend what Dan said into that. You need someone that's not quite going to shock the system, but implement something which dramatically changes what, the, 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 sort of the operating procedure beyond tactics and team selections and transfer the actual operating procedure of the football department at Manchester United. And Mike Phelan, probably because of, of his sort of proximity and relationship with the two people underneath him, is not really the person to do that. You almost need... A director of football should almost be a, a man on an island someone with kind of no loyalty to the people below him, someone who is a a, a a bloodless operator. And he's not that. He's a very likeable guy, he's very personable, he's, he's nice to talk to in press conferences and he's, he's very forthcoming. But you need someone that, again, is an extension of modernity and that needs to flow through all the different departments. It's a, not doing
0: it. This isn't a child sports day. This is not yeah. everyone wins a prize. This is the top <laughs> level of elite sport, whereas if you've got flaws people will expose them. Manchester City went out and handpicked from Barcelona, who they consider to be the best in the business, to get what they could. Manchester United are in serious danger of starting next season with a, a, man, a football manager and a technical director who, quite frankly, cannot believe their luck from a year ago, who, who they have no competition to a point, who have no particular expertise in the exact roles they're doing at, at this size of club. And that's... I mean, in my work, but it's a, it's a huge gamble. You know, you
1: know, it's really interesting. I remember Arsene Wenger saying some time ago that the, um, the unique challenge offered by Manchester City was that they didn't just have money, they had ideas too. Mm. And Manchester United at the moment, they have money, but where are the ideas? Where's the, um, where's the neophyte thinking <coughs> in that organisation?
2: Because if you look at a cross sport, now it's probably a bit niche, but I've just re- just finished reading a book on the Houston Astros baseball team that won the World Series. They challenged conventions. They took Moneyball to another level. And one of the areas that they worked on, with some people who worked at NASA, was um, the nature of the player, the character and personality of the player, the human chemistry of the dressing room, or in their case, the locker room. They brought in a guy called Carlos Beltran, 40 years old, paid him $16 million, because he was a great player, but there was almost a little bit of Vinnie company about him, where he was the glue which held the dressing room together. He went round to every player and said, look, I'm going to use my experience to help you become better. That's what Manchester United need. They need leadership from within rather than showbiz signings.
0: Yeah, and, and the players will deservedly take a lot of flack, but... Those players played very well when Solskjaer came into the club. It's no secret that that happy people make better footballers. It's no secret that players who are at a club where they feel everyone is pulling in the same direction and they don't feel that they are a collection of individuals but a team in in the very sense of that term play better football. And when Solskjaer came in, he gave them that instant lift. But if there's nothing else behind the scenes, if it is all just kind of built on sand, then then there's nothing to truly cling to and build foundations on. And you can blame those players if you want, but those players have all either succeeded at Manchester United before or elsewhere before coming to Manchester United. Paul Pogba, the obvious example, one of the world's best midfielders, if not the best midfielder in the world, at Juventus. He hasn't become a bad player. He's become a player and a person who feels disenfranchised with the whole situation. And you look at Man United's hierarchy and you can kind of see his point as well. He might think... if you're a player who, who might come to Manchester United this summer as a 70, million, £80 million player, we know that the, the potential transfer targets. Is there not five or six clubs ahead of Manchester United on your list where you think, well, hang on, they're doing things better and they'll well, probably pay me about the same. In, yeah. in, a,
1: in a team to, to take me to the place I want to be in mm. my career. Man United is not that place at the moment. If it's a straight choice between probably... If it's, if it's financial, Manchester United and Manchester City, but even just in the context of England, Manchester United, Manchester City, Spurs, Liverpool... Who's going to who's going to deliver you the very best career with with the, the attributes that you have? Who's going to make most use of that? It's not United at the moment. Who's mm.
2: yeah. going to make me a better player, basically? Yeah, what what As I'm saying. Absolutely. So you're looking at that. Guardiola does, you know, blatantly. Yep. Klopp has done. Yep. When you look at what he's doing, and you know, are we sort of missing a point because everyone obsesses about transfer speculation, don't they? So we're talking about, oh, it's going to be Jadon Sancho for hundred million and yeah. Declan Rice for sixty, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Those players coming into Manchester United as Manchester United is today won't do anything because of the situation that Manchester United are in and why they're in that situation.
0: Yeah, and you look at two of their, (laughs) the the saddest indictment of, of their transfer policies, you look at two of their biggest recent transfers in terms of wages and fees and it's Fred and it's Alexis Sanchez. Two players signed ostensibly to stop Manchester City signing them. That's that's a scandal. That is a, a, even in, in, forget football. In terms of business decisions, that's an absolute scandal. That that the forethought is so reactive rather than proactive that you end up with taking players off another club just to stop them signing them. Doesn't matter if they improve your club, and neither have. No. But just for, through that, and you're spending committing hundreds of millions of pounds on these players. It's it's an absolute nonsense. It really is. Mm.
2: And if you look at, and you know, I mentioned Vinnie Campani earlier, you know I can see him in the future being a very significant figure within the game, yep. you know, either as a manager, coach, director of football. A roving statesman somewhere. Whatever, <laughs> yeah. Um, and he makes the point, yeah, you know, as a player, he's limited these days. Yep. Inevitably. But as a figure within that dressing room, if Manchester City win the title, he'll deserve to be the one holding up the
1: trophy. Yeah. You agree? Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, you know, the great irony here, Mike, is that sort of Manchester United have a fascination with the past. You know, a lot of what we see in front of us today is dictated and instructed by what happened 15, 20, 25 years ago. The one thing that they didn't import into the modern age is that kind of figure, which they've always depended on in the past. All their sort of their great eras were were built around that sort of figure. I mean, in modern times, someone like Rio Ferdinand, but back obviously Robson and Bruce and Cantona, Roy Keane. So yeah, absolutely. Every, if, you, if you look around, if you look around Europe. And all the successful sides and you admire all the glinting talent and all the flashy stepovers mm-hmm. behind all of that there is that figure somewhere whether they're an active member you can talk about sort of the the last days of Carlos Payal's uh, career mm. that when, you, when you're when you a limited player when you're on the wane your legs are slightly gone but you're still there as kind of the conscience of the club it's very very important See, absolutely because That's especially true in the Manchester City example because company is a... If you have a a lot of turnover and a lot of ego and a lot of money being spent, a lot of players earning huge wages, you especially need that because that is is the balance in your dressing room. That is the the permanence of what it means to be a quote-unquote Manchester City player. However you want to define that, but you have to have that central identity there. Mm. Bernardo Silva,
2: are we only just realising what a good player he is?
0: Perhaps... I I interviewed him in October and I asked him why he thought Pep Guardiola was such a fan of him. And he said, um, I never stop running. I'm constantly open to learning. People always think I'm older than I am. Yes. Um, And I'm never frightened to have the ball. And that's basically, you know, you could ask Pep Guardiola to write a list of five things he looks for in a player and he'd probably write down at least yeah. four of those. Yeah. That is everything he's looking for in a player. It's the confidence not just to play pretty passes, but to, to demand the ball when the, the, the match situation is tough and when it's, you know, it's hard. And, and him and Kevin De Bruyne are the, the two in that team that do that. Raheem Sterling has been brilliant this season. Sergio Aguero has been brilliant this season. But if you're going to choose two players in that team to, to really protect the ball and to look after it and to take Manchester City's vision forward in every situation, it's those two. Um, and Bernardo is, is still, even with De Bruyne's injuries this season, is still in, in De Bruyne's shadow, I think. Um, he's pretty quickly stepping out of it and, and being named on the, on the player of the year list will do that.
2: Mm. Do you think City being out of the Champions
1: League, i.e. no distractions, will win them the league? I don't know, I don't know. I mean I, I understand the logic, but i, I man City, it's Manchester City's kind of white whale, isn't it? It's what they want they I mean obviously winning the Premier League is a tremendous achievement, but if you've done it before and you've done it in the style that they have, which they won't match this season, mm. then it's kind of a it's, it's, a, it's a consolation prize. i be mean, interested I mean I, I was um, we were talking before we started recording about about their performance against Spurs on Saturday. And it was strange. I mean, it was aggressive and nasty, and there was a lot of vitriol stored up from that night. Clearly, um, and I don't know whether it, it. I don't know what sort of effect that's going to have because there needs to be a little bit more control at this this time of the season. And it was kind of I watching that game and thinking you're, you've kind of reverted. City have kind of reverted to a pattern where they're just hoping Spurs don't score and that they want to get by. And I, I, I don't know. It makes me. If I was a City fan, that makes me nervous. So I, I don't think I don't think the two are um, two are necessarily linked. Although. You know, progress in the Champions League can actually energise your season. Depending on your resources and how how stretched you are, I think it can be a tremendous advantage. Mm. We like to put things in little boxes,
2: Dan. Um, what are the lessons from those three games against Spurs?
0: I think from the from the second leg of the Champions League, the big takeaway for me was that they, they went defensive too early. They brought on Fernandinho with about 25 minutes left to effectively shore up the game and that was the one time in the whole two legs and I don't normally like making comparisons between managers but that was the, the one time in the two legs when I thought, hang on, if this was Jurgen Klopp and they were in the ascendancy and they just scored the goal to take them would have taken them over the line if the score had stayed the same. He'd have said, look, these are here for the taking now. And Spurs were there for the taking. If, if they'd have carried on attacking, I honestly believe they'd have scored one or two more goals and taken the tie beyond Spurs. And yeah. they have to do the same in league games because the, the, sooner you, the, the closer you get to the finishing line, the more you score the first goal and think, right, we've got enough now, let's settle. But City are not at their best doing that. They're not secure enough defensively to do that still. Um, they have to push on the front foot. They have to keep doing that against Manchester United because yeah. we saw in the you know last season, we saw exactly the same fixture that City went ahead against Manchester United, took their foot off the gas. Manchester United came back in the second half, won 3-2 and, and, you know, and stopped City that day winning the title. They can do the same again. They're good enough that if they get a, a period of a game, United can score one or two goals pretty quickly. So they have to keep going on the front foot, I think.
2: While we're still on United, another question from Jonathan Allen. Why didn't Everton get the credit for an excellent performance? Why was it all poor old United?
1: <laughs> well, I don't think it was poor old Man United, but at the same time, Manchester United losing four 0 is a story, and that's just how it works. I've seen plenty of praise for for, for Everton. I've just finished writing an article which praises uh, Everton, but it's just that's the nature of things. Manchester, Manchester United are not only the uh, the uh, more followed, bigger club. Uh, hesitate to use words like bigger because <laughs> I know what that will do to me on social media but it just is it's more relevant uh, Everton may yet snag a, a Europa League spot but United are in the conversation for the Champions League that's that's the nature of things so there's no there's no mm. big agenda there OK
2: let's look um, on Friday Liverpool i um, have probably got the biggest foregone conclusion playing Huddersfield mm. you actually saw uh, Jan Sievert yes. this week give us a flavour of how he is trying to do an impossible job, 74 points between those two
0: teams. Yeah, he is um, remarkably upbeat, which I suppose you have to be. Um, But he also points out... I I asked him, the first question was about whether he thought he had a hospital pass, and I expected him to bat it away, and he said, yeah, no, I have, yeah. (laughs) Um, I would rather come into a club where it was a succession from David Wagner to me than an emergency situation, and he was brought in an emergency situation. I, I suspect there are some players who even before David Wagner had left, had one eye on their next moves this summer. Um, I think it's pretty obvious who some of those players are. I don't suspect they will be there. I think they'll lose five or six. Uh, And I think from speaking to him, Jan Sievert is pretty happy with that. He'd rather have people who he thinks can, um, he can scope into his team. Uh, But yeah, he's remarkably upbeat. Obviously it's a disappointing run, but you look at Huddersfield man for man, and there aren't many games that they go into and you think, yeah, they should beat that team. And, And, there are teams in the championship where I'd put 11 against 11. You know, Aston Villa are fifth in the championship, but yeah. I put their 11 against Huddersfield, and I think it's considerably better. So they're probably paying for David Wagner's overachievement, and I, I don't think they will stand in Liverpool's way at all.
1: Mm. Do you expect Liverpool to drop any points? So, not looking at the fixture list, no, I don't. I don't, I don't see it. I mean, I, I expect that will be how the the title is decided. Just a continuation of. I mean, it's one of the, the longest sequences of. of uh, Know, two teams not dropping points that we've ever seen in the Premier League era, and uh, there's no real reason to believe that's going to change anywhere.
0: Mm. I, I honestly believe that if if City win the derby, then um, then both sides will go on to win each of their remaining games, and strangely that will feel almost anticlimactic given how. Uh, outrageous this, this title assault has been. We, for a title race, we normally require kind of light and shade and nip and tuck, and the one thing we've not had in this title race is any nip and yeah. tuck. It's just been a constant... Grinding excellence, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and it will feel slightly anticlimactic, but it shouldn't, because we should look back on this and realise just how kind of unique it is. Yeah.
2: Mm. One thing you know, we talked about earlier about management techniques, um, what I thought was interesting at Cardiff on Saturday, how... Klopp basically gave the dressing room its head, allowed the players to talk through the potential issues, you know, how do we get better at yeah. set pieces in the second half.
1: Is that a sign of how Klopp has matured as a manager? Yeah, I, I think it is. But I think it's also a, a sign of how much trust has developed between him and his players because that is a, a critical moment in the season. It, it all looks very easy in hindsight because it's a you know, win against Cardiff. But if you're, if you're willing to empower players then, at that moment where... You know, it, it, Sean Morrison has a very good chance to equalise late in the game. Liverpool could have fallen flat that day, and, and the title race could already be over. Um, so it, it's very, very interesting. It also, uh, it's kind of it's a break for him. When, when, when you think about Klopp, you think about um, his his ideology and his method of playing the game, kind of overshadows everything else. It almost um, it, it almost puts the players themselves into the shade. So it's a kind of is an interesting little tweak to, to kind of um, to what we know about him, I guess. Mm. But I suppose it's also
2: a reflection of some of the characters within the dressing room. You know, you're looking at Milner, mm-hmm. Henderson, Virgil van Dyke. That's a sign of a collective that you compare, compare and contrast to, say, United, which is just a disparate mm. you know, collection of
0: individuals. Yeah, Henderson's one that, that jumps out to me every time um, because he's a player who's been criticised at Liverpool uh, in the past. He's the only regular member of that team that was there and coaching staff who was there in 2013-14 who remembers that failure. Um, And he's taken upon it himself, having played a slightly different role for England where he pushed forward, he's taken upon it himself to speak to Jurgen Klopp and say, I think this will help us. And as we've said, credit Klopp for taking that on board. But that's a heck of a shout from, from Jordan Henderson, who's not a player stereotypically who we... We can, He's what we might call a blood and thunder player, we might think, but that shows a kind of tactical and strategical nous that we maybe didn't see in him before. Uh, and, look, if, it's a heck of a story arc if Liverpool win the title and, and he's made the difference in the final weeks, even above the the front three, and he's the surviving member from 2013-40.
1: Dan, this is also like a... This is another instance of... We were talking about Vincent Kompany earlier. Another instance of the value of that kind of player. Is Jordan Henson the most talented footballer in the league? No. Is he the most talented midfielder at Liverpool? No. Yet he's someone who has, I, I even call it a humility. You know your place within the squad. You're willing to adapt around other people and you're, you're willing to slot in without letting it um, diminish your attitude. And It's a tremendous virtue in a football player, especially now. It really is. Mm. One thing, you know, we all have our little
2: favourite moments of clock press conferences. There was <laughs> something he, he came up with uh, last week which struck me which it it sort of almost speaks to a much broader issue. This is the direct quote. Uh, It's on Mo Salah. Uh, Mo is a role model in so many different things. It's really nice to have him and Sadio too. Both are Muslims, full of love, full of joy. He's very influential for us. He's grasping a nettle there uh, in the way probably that Raheem Sterling is in the racism issue. Football is a healing force that possible
0: yeah well it's 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 it might well be the best chance we've got um it's the it's the the hobby and the passion that unites probably more people in this country than any other and certainly of of, of many different faiths and religions um what's important is that they're leading by example you know you go to cairo and you see just how um how much pressure is on Mohamed Salah as an egyptian to lead his national team to lead egypt around the world with liverpool if you went to Dakar, you'd see exactly the same with Sadio Mane in Senegal. Um, these are these are players who you could easily shy away from. Their only responsibility, and I include Raheem Sterling in this as well, their only responsibility is to be good footballers. The fact that they're able to do that at an incredibly pressurised time, but also take on this mantle of role model and leader by example is it's pretty extraordinary because for all their lives, they have only ever trained to be footballers. They've not trained to be statesmen or, um, you know...
2: Social commentators. Exactly,
0: or eloquent speakers, but they do it through example. I can't really, I can't really remember, other than Mohamed Salah saying that he would be, happy to, um, would be happy to not win the Champions League, it meant winning the Premier League for the supporters. I can't remember a single thing that him or Sadio Mane have said this season in public. But that's not the point. It's the leading by example that makes them special. And... All, all power to them for doing it.
1: It's the Drogba quality as well. Yeah. Drogba was very like that, very very socially conscious, Very um, had a, an aura about him, which you didn't necessarily see. From, from, a, from a British vantage point, you didn't necessarily grasp it. But when, you know, a bit of reading or, you know, sort of selective viewing, you, you kind of grew to understand what he meant in Africa and uh, the Ivory Coast it's very interesting it's kind of a uh, it's a very special person that can that can occupy that space mm.
2: well I'm, you know I'd also include Danny Rose in that yeah absolutely Which brings me yeah. you know, because we don't throw this show together it brings me to top <laughs> um, on the way in Brighton West Ham Bournemouth Everton they're pretty much home and host for third place you think
0: Yeah, (laughs) they've managed to lose twice to Manchester City in a week and reach the Champions League semi-final and stay third in the Premier League, so it couldn't have gone much better. Um, I think they probably are going to finish in the top four, but three or four weeks ago I had them down as finishing fifth or sixth because I just didn't see how that run of fixtures and lack of strength and depth in the squad could, could marry together to keep them there. But it's it's an it's an odd season, and that we see the top six so far ahead of the rest, and yet there are such substantial flaws in three to six that Spurs might well stay there almost by default.
1: I I mean I have a few reservations, Mike. I, I think there are there are some there are some dynamics in that squad which, you, which which worry me because of the nature of the opponents they're about to face. Brighton tonight will be absolutely delighted with a the point. They will set up for a goalless draw. Now Spurs have had a lot of joy recently out of playing from the counter-attack, you know, especially against City, the pace with Obmoura and Son up front has been very, very helpful. Uh, They've lost to Soko, which a year ago you wouldn't be that troubled by, but now um, it's sort of, you're lacking a little bit of thrust from your midfield. Um, In its place will come Wanyama or Dyer, maybe Harry Winks, but either way, I mean, if it's not Winks, it's going to be a very sort of, a a very lateral midfield, um, which is not really what you need against that kind of opponent. West Ham are a bit of a wild card because that is by far the most important game to them each season um, and they will respond accordingly to that. There are little landmines here. Um, so maybe it's the sort of my, my historical bias against this situation. But uh, yeah, let, let's not sign off it just yet. I think should they win tonight and on Saturday, okay. Because I would imagine that Arsenal and or Man United and Chelsea will drop some points this week. But let's, uh, let's, let's, let's give it another six or seven days first. I love it when he squirms. You'll then. believe it. <laughs> you first, you'll believe No, because it, someone will dig it out. You know, in six months' time, <laughs> I'll be sitting at home happily and then someone will find a clip and help me with it on social media. <laughs> and I'm not having that. It's not going to happen. Yeah, but won't Pochettino, you know, to, to use the, the
2: well-worn cliche, you know, take the positives from what he's been through in the last couple of weeks and use that to galvanise the squad?
0: More than ever before. Um the, the irony of, of Tottenham is that they desperately needed strength and depth last summer and they still desperately need strength and depth. But as their options reduce, so his responsibility and role in creating the team that's greater than some of it parts increases. And, and I, to my mind, I don't think there's a better coach in the world at doing that at the moment. So... Yeah, he only becomes more vital in these situations. The the finishing line is in sight. They have this glorious, glorious bonus of of a Champions League semi final, um, and if there's one manager who will be more determined not to waste that than any other, it's him. And um, yeah, I think he he's an astonishing manager. I think he's I think he's the best manager in the Premier League, uh, even with Jurgen Klopp and Pep Guardiola doing what they're doing.
2: Mm. I suppose the consolation for you, Seb, at least. You were doing better than Arsenal. <laughs> I have no comment to make on that. either. <laughs> the matter, I, 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 you, you look at you know you look at yeah. that, that that defeat at home to Palace, yeah, you know, and you know, to to use the ML Heskey line, you know, and 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 Christian Becker <laughs> <laughs> even Christian Benteke scored, um, that could, in the in the
1: you know short to medium term, be a really damaging defeat for Arsenal, couldn't it? Absolutely. I mean, if if, if they won that game, then sort of, I, I think. Um, Arsenal are odds against it to now finish in the in top four, despite everything else that's happened this weekend. Um, the texture of that defeat was really troubling, Mike, um, because uh, Balis are a decent side, but you shouldn't be conceding three goals to them uh, and three goals like that at home. And also this week, I mean, Wolves are, Wolves have had a little bit of a drop-off since um, the FA Cup semi-final. Um, but that is a very, very difficult place to go. It's a very difficult place to go if you've got uncertainty loitering in your defence. If you're, I mean, the, the the saving grace amongst Arsenal fans, it seems, is that um, Socrates is going to come back into the side. But if you're changing players over, you're never really developing any proper defensive chemistry, and Wolves are absolutely good enough to to take advantage of that. Um, you know, sort of late season malaise or not, um, it's it's complicated for Arsenal, and it's it's as it as it always seems to be, it's unnecessarily complicated. It it's sort of, um, you know, they 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 probably. Maybe they should have lost to Everton, but they shouldn't have given the performance to Everton that they did because, well, they lost one nil. It could have been four or five. It's a completely unex- unacceptable way to finish the season. If you're, if you have a chance of not only finishing the top four, um, but overcoming a local rival that have had the better of you now for a couple of years. They haven't had a better opportunity in in seasons than this, and yet somehow, all the kind of the positivity from the season is now ebbing away. Um, and the Europa League is is kind of, a, I suppose, the saving grace, but it's um, it's getting a little bit scarce. Mm. What do you make of uh, you know Emery? Yeah. If you look at it statistically,
2: he's been their most successful manager recently, won 32 games out of his first 50.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I do seem... I have some sympathy for him because of the, you know, the corporate structure of the club. Will he be able to recruit effectively? Um, is he making the best of a bad job? I think he's made mistakes.
0: I think he... he... Generally, he, he changes his team too much. He almost tends to, what we accuse Pep Guardiola doing in the Champions League, of slightly overthinking things. Um, I think his, his substitutions are slightly off sometimes. There doesn't seem to be any logical thought behind some of them and they don't always work. But in general, I'm, I'm very pro his job, simply because while other managers around him and above him can afford to spend £250 million in a transfer window or buy three new senior players... He isn't going to have that luxury, and he he hasn't had that luxury yet. And um, when a long-term manager leaves, even one that had managed into slight decline, as as Arsene Wenger had, the the potential for a hangover is pretty huge. And nobody is thinking about Arsene Wenger anymore in terms of the good side of Wenger. And that's a huge testament to Emery. It does feel like his team or his club now, which is is pretty impressive nine months on. Um, but yeah, he has made mistakes, but. I, he look at the—I mean, he shouldn't have made the changes he did on Sunday. But having done that, you look at those backup options, and they are even with Spurs' thin squad, they're worse than Spurs' options. Yeah. The backup mm. options—they are—they are pitiful. Um, as soon as you get beyond the, the initial crop, and that has well, to chase in point. How does Mustafi keep getting picked? Well, I was—I mean, I was there on Sunday, and he was every Arsenal defensive calamity. He seems to be at the heart of, and the. He's a £34 million central defender, a German international central defender, and there seems no sense that he learns from any of his mistakes. He, le- he leaves Christian Benteke five yards free for the first. He allows Wilfred Zahar to run past him for the second, even though he can see Bert Leno isn't coming out. There is no... And he is a starting centre-back in that team now.
1: You know what's really troubling about it? The, 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 um, the Zaha goal is he makes a mistake, and, and you, can, you can accept a mistake, even one that's that bizarre, because I, I still haven't had a. Uh, an explanation for what he was actually trying to do, but it's it's the kind of the attempt to uh, pass on the responsibility to his goalkeeper, because you just look ridiculous. And this, like you say, this is a. I know we're dealing in intangibles now. It's a an international footballer who has who has been paid an awful lot of money, who is worth an awful lot of money. And you think sometimes can you imagine uh, Per Mertesacker in that situation, he makes a mistake. Presumably, he owns the mistake, and th- this Mustafi. I think that that's his worst attribute, really—not his, his sort of his uh, his technical deficiencies. It's this, because uh, you've seen it before. It's this capacity to kind of to, to to take no responsibility, which I have to believe is involved in his in his failure to to learn from those mistakes. Mm. You mentioned Zahar, You know, there's an inevitable end-of-season speculation about him. Um, do you expect this to be the summer that he finally leaves Palace? Well, I—I I mean, I, I can't believe there's a coincidence in his willingness to do these kind of interviews now and talking about his past at a top four side. It's, I mean, in my mind, clearly designed to assuage any doubts people who might be willing to spend 60, 70 million pounds on him may have from that Manchester United period. Um, yeah. I, I, when I. When a player starts talking about, I want to see the big stadiums in the Champions League and I, I think I could do a job that it seems to be only really be leading one way.
0: Yeah, he, He's also probably... In, he Yeah, in yeah. terms of his age, he's probably the best player outside the top yeah, six. I agree. He's played 300 career games, league games now, and 286 of them have been at Palace. Now, with all respect to Palace, he isn't going to get in the Champions League with them. And I think the best move for all concerned, including Palace, would be a move abroad. Yeah. Um, so that they wouldn't have to face that torment of playing him twice a season, but that they could see... A player and a person in who they are very proud. You know, he's a South London boy in that he, he came over and, early and grew up there and has always been at Palace and is incredibly proud of the club and would leave with a heavy heart. So, if we can go elsewhere and allow them to continue to be yeah. proud of him, I think that's the best solution.
1: Mm. Mm.
2: One of the sadnesses of the, 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 you know, the slither of the season we've got left is that Callan Hubson Adoy won't be around. Mm. Um, that almost capped. Another awful week, isn't it, for Chelsea? That, that two two draw against Burnley means or does it mean that Chelsea at
1: Old Trafford on Sunday is basically a playoff. It's almost a knockout game, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean Chelsea Chelsea's reaction to that game was really strange. I know the tactics, I'm aware of the tactics Burnley employed during that game. There was enough time available in that game for Burnley to score twice that it wasn't there? And Chelsea Chelsea's recent history is not exactly uh, unblighted by instances of trying to take the rhythm out of games or wind down the clock. And I'm sure Liverpool fans have back me up there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, 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 I don't know. I, I find it is this weird dichotomy here, Mike, in that I watch Chelsea, I'm fundamentally unimpressed by what I see. And yet you look at the table and you think, well, they're only a point behind Spurs. And they're only, they're, they're level on points with Arsenal and they're ahead of Man United. It's, you know Because United have that big stretch of positive results. And Chelsea have kind of maintained this tone all the way through the year, and somehow it's as if there are they've been mining points from other sources, and they've just <laughs> snuck to this position. But yeah, if they lose, if they lose at the weekend, obviously uh, the game last night was um, was gives uh, them a, a sort of a, the, 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 um, uh, their challenges a game in hand over them. Um, so yeah, really they have to get something from Old Trafford now. Mm.
2: There's a question from uh, Jonathan Brick. Don't forget the best of the rest. Whom do the panel predict, given the run-in, will play Europa League qualifying come July?
0: Well, well Watford play Wolves on, on yeah. Saturday, 27th of April. That's a play uh, that, that Yeah, that probably is a play Obviously, Leicester and Everton are there, but Leicester have still got to play teams in the top two and Everton have got to go away to Spurs in the final day. Yeah. So I suspect it will be one of Watford and Wolves. And I think Wolves need it more. I think Wolves, of all those clubs, um, would probably embrace Europa League football, um, which not every team and manager does. Um, but they're in danger, their season is in slight danger of petering out a little bit, which mm. makes, makes Nuno a victim of his early season success, but doesn't change the fact and that... Nuno's it, strangely angry. Yeah, well, well he should be, He's... I think.
1: But it's an odd one, though, because I, I, I completely agree with that. I think Wolves need it, but I think Wolves need it because it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's decoration for their season. Watford have had a great season. Watford are going to an FA Cup final. Um, Everton have not really had a great season, but they've had a a great sort of final run in. Wolves have played some great football. They've been um, the semi-final side. They've been one of the success stories. And this would kind of be a this would be the framing of what has been an amazing journey. They're a newly promoted side and they don't feel anything like a newly promoted side. And that's a a tremendous accolade. Mm.
2: What about the the sort of broader issue of the advent of, of survival football? At Wolves, you know, Brighton, you know, parked a whole fleet of buses. <laughs> they, they didn't get a shot on target, um, yet they got exactly what they wanted, which was a point. Are we seeing almost a, a, a trend now where there's almost like an inbuilt inferiority complex that say, right, OK, we aren't going to beat these guys, let's just shut it up? I,
0: I get it. I, I, I do Get it because I think it, it, as a fan it is a reaction to the notion that your club is purely concentrating on staying in the Premier League because of the vast broadcasting revenues it can give them. Um, and I know Newcastle supporters who consider that season in the Championship as the their most enjoyable for years. But it sh- there is a little bit of revisionism there because that's fine if you come straight back up. If you then have four or five years in the championship, I promise you, being in the Premier yeah. League is better, um, both for the club and probably for supporters. You're speaking as well. for Nottingham Forest. I am. yes. Yeah, 20 years this year in the championship. <laughs> it's not just a few yeah. years, is it, done. <laughs> exactly, it's two decades. It's more almost two thirds of my life. Um, so yeah, I, I think there is a little bit of revision. If you could choose to have a one season of the championship and come back up, you will obviously enjoy it. Yeah. Um, and I get that. I've seen Bournemouth supporters saying, "Oh, you know, 11th or 12th again, trying to survive." It isn't that interesting? But that's the reality of English football. The, there is no other option. The only other option is to, is to drop back down. And while that might seem like a refreshing change, it soon loses its originality. Um, I, I don't think you can blame clubs for scrapping, I have to say. That's, that's, that's what English football has created in, in terms of the rampant commercialisation and um, profiteering of the top and the best in the game. There's no, there's no way around it. It's just the reality.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dan mentioned Newcastle. Are you getting as bored as I am with the whole <laughs> Rafa Benitez saga? It's now about the wage
1: bill, and I reached that point a year ago. I mean, <laughs> it's. Uh, I mean, I, I I completely understand Rafa Benitez's situation. Like I, I I'm amazed that he's still there, and I actually, I consider kind of um, another season of of um, safety a tremendous achievement for him. But yeah, I mean, I I just don't I don't see who this aids this situation. Well, it's all about. Profitable mediocrity, isn't it? That's yeah, what it that's is. It's just like, but that—that is—that is such a disheartening phrase. <laughs> it's yeah. just that makes me want to walk away from the game and 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 watch ice hockey or you know just whatever. It just—it's so joyless. It's so joyless. It's so—it's so beside the point, Mike, as well. And I'm—I'm I'm not even a Newcastle fan, but it just—it it drains my enthusiasm for the sport.
0: The, the irony, obviously, being that the only reason Benitez is still there is because of the supporters. Yeah. And the only reason that Mike Ashley might not cave in to, to Rafa Benitez is because he considered those, those supporters are so loyal that even if Benitez leaves, yeah. a, a large percentage of them will still turn up to games and pay their money. So, And while Newcastle are a, a safe Premier League club, he's more than happy with that. You have to hope that if, if Benitez is allowed to walk away, that they're relegated next season and that Ashley learns is, is taught a lesson that way. But then... It's only the supporters that are then punished anyway. So.
1: Well, what I find troubling also is that um, obviously uh, Newcastle released a, a fresh set of financial results recently and it revealed something like a, a half million pounds worth of growth in their commercial revenue. So my question would be what is this all in aid of? What is this great retraction of the playing budget and what are these, what are the kind of the, um, I'd be careful how I phrase this, but what is what St. James's Park has become aesthetically? What is that in aid of? Why is why why is what is actually being prioritised? It, it just it doesn't really make any sense. Mm-hmm. And I, I find I find Newcastle to be such a, 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 a not enigma because that sounds too exciting, um, but just baffling. Yeah.
0: Just but right. Benitez, has, baffling. Benitez has has um, earned his right in this political absolutely. game to, to behave as he is. Absolutely. The 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 cost of their ten most used players this season is thirty eight million in total. Um, I know this, I'm Alm- uh, a in January, but 38 million total on 10, and they are performing so far above that expectation. Yep. So he's earned his right to be political, it's just that it got boring a long time yeah, ago.
2: Yeah. yeah. Let's look at the final um, relegation place. Cardiff are at resurgent Fulham, which is a place <laughs> you couldn't use too <laughs> often.
1: Um, last chance saloon you know? Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I, I just, Cardiff looked knackered. Um, they had a little bit of a spike against Liverpool. But I, I enjoyed watching them, and I enjoyed going there uh, for the first sort of few months of the season. And then there was a, a very obvious tail off where their um, their limitations became exposed, and the kind of the physical burden of playing the league and playing in the way that they do um, started to show. So I, I don't think I don't think that they're gonna. I don't expect Brighton to you know to run the table, of course. But I I think three points is still too much for Hull. For Cardiff at this point in the season. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to. Resurgent Fulham, I I have a little (laughs) bit of difficulty with. (laughs) Not as bad as they were Fulham, maybe. Maybe it's slightly better. Um, But they're staring and I I expect them to beat them just because, uh, you know, uh, going back to what we've thought about Fulham all the way through the season, they have more ways to beat you than Cardiff do. Um, That they haven't done that throughout the season is obviously relevant, but now seem to be reacting to Scott Parker. So, yeah. Quick look at awards season. Um,
2: PFA lists. I was surprised by the omission of Wan Bissaka in the Young Player of the Year, and bewildered by Raheem Sterling and Bernardo Silva being in the the main play, uh, the, the Young Player of the Year as well. What's that? What? I, I know I know the semantics of it, and twenty, you've got yeah. to be twenty three and everything, but it just didn't feel
0: right. No players, and, and it feels like we have this discussion most years now that yeah. twenty three or potentially even twenty four, which Sterling is is not a. It's not young for an attacking footballer, particularly nowadays. It should be a, it should either be a 21 and under at the start of the season, or it should be a, a breakthrough player of the season award. And, and wan would qualify for both, um, as with James Madison. Sense, right? Yeah, as just, with, <laughs> yeah, as with James Madison, who I think had an excellent season. Yeah. In, I mean, t- in terms of the yeah, in terms of of that, I think there's no doubt. It's just whether they they get around to changing it because. It isn't actually that important, is it? It's just—it's something to get annoyed about. It just needs
1: an asterisk on the form that the players fill out. Just—just just apply some common sense. Yeah. I like, just—just—just just think about it. Footballers saying... and common sense. Well, there, you <laughs> there, there you go. There you
2: go. Yeah. Okay. What about the main awards for for
1: the PFA award? I... Well, FWA, I, I, I went Raheem, uh, mm. just because I, I think he's had a wonderful season on the pitch. Um, and I know people take issue of this, but I—I I think who's been off the pitch is relevant. And well, it's my vote, and I'll. Yep. Use it how I want to. And, and I, I like to consider things like that. I think um, he's a tremendous force for good, not just in the game, but in the country too. Yeah, I,
0: yeah. I, I went Sterling as well because I... Yeah, it sounds cliché, but Virgil van Dijk has made the biggest difference to his team this season, but Sterling's made the biggest difference to the sport in the country as a whole.
2: Mm. Well, I've voted for Sterling as well. I first saw him at the age of 14. He's grown into a man of stature, an inspiration on and off the pitch. Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast.